Um, yesterday, Angela and I went to see a movie. And if in, you just assume, uh, like when we went to see this movie, I assumed two things about this film, what it would do. One, there would be no explosions in it. Which some of you are like, well, why did you go see it? But um, there, was no, there would be no explosions in it. And two, it would probably cause emotion to leak out of me. Um, and it very much did that. Uh, we went and saw uh, a man called Otto. And um, yeah, that's... There were, uh, there, was there, were, uh, there was dust in my eye a couple of times. It was weird. The theater was dusty. It was dusty. <laughs> so, but what I'm saying is, like, there's assumptions that we have. When, when, I, when, when, I, th when I tell you we're going to talk about Scripture, some things might happen inside of you. Uh, you might be excited about that. Um, you might be nervous. Let me ask you this, a little bit of internal reflection for yourself. When you think about your relationship with the Bible, on a scale of one to 10, you have to give yourself a number, where are you at? Meaning 10, man, I read it all the time, I love it, I'm totally, I'm good, I'm excited, um, I wanna learn everything. Maybe you're kind of middle of the road, like a five, kind of, hey, I was that once, but now I'm, life's busy, I'm a little indifferent to it, there's things I don't know much about, and I'm kind of afraid to dive into it. Maybe you're down like the one-two level. <laughs> you're like, this thing is a mess of human patriarchy and violence, and I don't like what people use it for. Where are you at? What's your number scale? And I want you to hold on to that, because we're going to talk a little bit more about what to do with that at the end. But we're going to take some time the next few weeks and unpack what Scripture is, what it isn't. And my goal is that at the end game of this conversation, this series of conversations, is to reawaken our willingness to engage Scripture for our spiritual formation as a community. I, my hope is that at the end of this, that it will be something that becomes more, um, uh, there's something that reawakens in us. Wherever you are on the number scale. So where do we start? Well, here's a couple starting places that we could start. The first one is we could line up all of our questions and problems with the Bible and start hitting those, you know, surgically, Right? Maybe use this as kind of like a, a Bible defense apologetics kind of time where someone could throw out their problem with the Bible and we can unpack it and like make you understand that that shouldn't be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> 
Because let's be honest, there's weird stuff in the Bible. Like, there's this story of this woman named Ruth who sleeps at this guy's feet. It's just weird. On, on first reading. There's some real cringeworthy stuff in Scripture, too. Um, we have a group of guys that meet. Um, there's two different groups of guys meet called the Ten Man Table groups, and um, our group just finished a series in First and Second Samuel, and it's so violent and so um, like, why did that happen? Right? We were all just talking about how excited we are to be done with First and Second Samuel, but there's some really heavy stuff. There's sexual assault in the Bible. There's polygamy in the Bible. There's times when it's like, it sounds like God's saying to do something that's not very Jesus-like. Then there's full of, there's the Bible is full of miraculous things, which for us late modern Westerners feels off as well. There's teachings in Scripture that are at odds with kind of the heavy uh, narratives of our day, whether they be the progressive left or the conservative right. There's teachings in Scripture that are kind of contra both of those. And I feel like there's so many conversations that I've been having with people that highlight the reality that we're living in this kind of breakdown in trust in the Bible. So, for instance, violence in the Old Testament, the story of Jericho. The church tradition I grew up in was very heavy on this idea of personal Bible application. And so you would read a story like Jericho, and at the end, someone would say, what's your Jericho? (laughs) And... um, (laughs) That's just... uh, it's just, I don't, I don't think that's the approach. See, I think more people are on their way to becoming post-Bible Christians. Which in my, um, in my from my perspective, is just a, kind of a layover stop to becoming post-Christian. And so t- today, how do we approach it, right? How do we do this? What angle do we take? Um, people are having a hard time wrestling out the Bible. So we can start with questions and problems, but we're not going to. We're not going to put the Bible on trial. We're not going to be judge and jury and examine and pronounce guilty or innocence on the Bible. Uh, We're not going to proof text it. Um, There's another way we could approach this conversation, and that starts with the Bible itself in the sense of what does the Bible say about itself, um, which is a good thing, it's, it, but this leaves out people who are having uh, a problem trusting Scripture. Uh, we don't trust the Bible because the Bible claims to be Scripture any more than we trust the Quran. Uh, or the Bhagavad Vita, or Book of Mormon. We don't, uh, the, these scriptures, these all have within themselves that kind of a form of the, the scripture, and we're, we're not going to approach it like that. Uh, sometimes we have come to trust it um, in our histories 
but we kind of keep the Bible at, at arm's length a little bit. Um, this may be your story, I'm not sure. Um, like, we are the subject, the Bible is the object. It's kind of this idea, what's your Jericho, you know? Like, we're the, the, the main character of the story, you know, kind of thing. Uh, we think about the Bible with our minds. But I want to suggest that control, like controlling what the Bible tells us in some ways, is not spiritual formation. It actually, um, I think it's, I think it's not the intent. I think it's really possible to become people who know the Bible really well, but are not loving like Jesus of Nazareth. I think it's really easy to do that. So today I propose a different angle. And this is going to sound very Sunday schoolish, but we're going to start with Jesus. It's, it sounds really creative, I know. <laughs> but follow me. Jesus was a rabbi. He was a rabbi. Teacher. What did Jesus teach? He taught the scriptures. Yeah. <laughs> That's a trick question. <laughs> he taught the scriptures. He read from it, the Bible of his day. He read from it. He taught from it. He took issues with other interpretations of it. And mostly, most likely, he had like all of it memorized. He had a grasp of scripture that was huge. His whole vision for life and the kingdom was based on scripture. He had this high view of scripture. He quoted from it. He said, the scripture cannot be broken. He said, it is written a number of times in his conversations with others. Um, the reason why you have it in your hands and on your phones and maybe you have a bunch of different versions at home is not because you have like this weird obsession with ancient literature. It's because somewhere along the way, you have most likely come to trust and apprentice Jesus. Therefore, you have a copy of the scriptures. So I, don't want you to I want to encourage you that there's no version of legitimate apprenticeship to Jesus that does not have scripture involved in it. And this is the part where our approach is really important when it comes to scripture. There's a guy named Andrew Wilson. He wrote, wrote a very brief but great book on scripture. And he makes his argument that I think is just fantastic. We'll throw this on the screen. He says, ultimately, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ. The man who was God, the king of the world, the crucified, risen, and exalted rescuer. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him and I decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. So I want to look at what Jesus says about Scripture and then hopefully, as we wind our way towards the end, um, maybe your number changes. 
you know, your number I asked you to think about in your head. Matthew, the book of Matthew is a, an account of Jesus written by um, one of his disciples. And the beautiful part about the book of Matthew is it was written in a way, many scholars believe, that was meant to be taught in churches. So the early church is, is going and people want to have an account of Jesus. And so Matthew writes his and Luke writes his and Mark and John. John's is later. And, but Matthew just has this really like accessible church gathering feel to it. And this, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount. And right before the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is, is talking, and he's talking with uh, some, some people in earshot, and he says this in verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. What were the law and the prophets? The law was the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and the prophets, basically, this is a way of saying the law and the prophets and all of it, like all of the scriptures, everything in between. He says, I have not come to abolish them. And that word abolish is a uh, word called, uh, it's pronounced katalusomai, and it's this idea of tearing down. He's like, I've not come to tear it down or demolish it. Um, in our day, think of the word to pull something apart or to deconstruct it. Uh, he says, I, don't, I didn't come to deconstruct the scriptures. Um, but he was saying things that were so radical that to, to them it felt like he was doing that. He says, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Notice he doesn't say, I did not come to abolish them, but to obey. He didn't say obey them. Uh, he, he talked about fulfilling them. That word to fulfill is plerao. It's all through the Gospels. Um, it's this idea of a prophecy coming to pass in and through Jesus. And in verse, verse 18, he says this, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter... Not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside. The word sets aside is the word luo, and it has the same Greek, it has the same kind of root word as abolish. So the idea, he's, like, he's actually using a very good play on words here. It's the same, it's this idea of to untie. So like untying your shoe or to loosen something. So to, he says, I'm not coming. Therefore, and if anyone who sets aside or anybody who relaxes or loosens one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly. Okay, so if anybody like just kind of loosens this, accommodates, make, makes this easy, relaxes it, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices, teaches these commands, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So if you don't set it aside, if you don't, if you don't relax it, if you take it seriously, 
especially as some scholars say, Jesus is teaching on the Bible, like they call it the canon within the canon, so to speak. Uh, like, if you take it seriously and practice it, that's the aim. So for Jesus, think about this. I think what Jesus is saying here is that there seems to be a reciprocal relationship with how we approach the Bible, how we approach Scripture, and the level of our experience of and participation in the kingdom of God. That there's a correlation there. And he goes on, he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses or goes beyond that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what then Jesus does is he goes on in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you've read that before, there are so many different instances in it where he says, um, you have heard it said, but I tell you this, right? He's actually pushing against the common in, in, interpretations of Scripture that they'd come to know. He's kind of going back and saying, calling into question some of the inter interpretations that they are living with. Because Jesus' way of reading the Bible calls into questions other ways of reading the Bible in his day and in our day. Here's the problem. Sadly, this is uh, the Bible... <laughs> has been caught up in some culture wars in our day and age. So, for instance, more of a progressive left reading of Scripture looks at the Scriptures as a human document of old ideas, like patriarchy, right? I watched Joe Rogan argue with somebody about how the New Testament was formed. And he was angry, and he threw out all these very unhistorical things <laughs> and timelines, and because um, he, he's like, it's just a human thing. Some people believe, you know, it's just a worth a read now and then. They'll take it maybe seriously as literature, but not as scripture. Uh, they can't accept the divine and human word as scripture. And then there's like a really hard reaction on, in a sense, that left thinking side against how people on the very conservative, right-leaning people read and interpret and live out scripture, which I get. Now, there's also a reaction <laughs> from the fundamentalist reading of Scripture on the right, very conservative side. This is called Biblicism, or um, think of it as like, um, if you're familiar with the Bible Project, um, they're really good at talking about this as well, this idea of the golden tablets view of Scripture, which is these golden tablets dropped out of heaven, um, idea that scripture was written through humans, but the humans had no agency at all. They were just in kind of like a divine trance, you know? Um, there are zero errors and no contradictions. 
Um, this made some of me saying that to you made some of you nervous. So hold on to that. Um, a manual for living kind of thing. Or as my favorite bumper sticker, I say with sarcasm, um, <laughs> I, I hate bringing up bumper stickers because of Tom Boundy, but um, <laughs> when I bring up religious bumper stickers and make fun of them, Tom finds them and puts them on my car. Um, that famous bumper sticker, <laughs> the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Mm, that always does good, putting that on your car. So this view, and this is a view that it, it, it's got, some of you come to our community with a history growing up with this view. So I'm not, I mean, this is part of our history. Uh, this view takes the Bible seriously as scripture, but not as literature, and even saying that, some of you are like, it's not literature. Um, what I'm saying is that there's genre, there's beautiful stuff in there, okay, so we have to unpack all of it. And some of you, it's like having a hard time accepting the reality that the human side of the Bible, behind the Bible, which is not a dirty little secret, it's actually something the library of scripture is very open to talking about and nuancing. So... All that to say, I don't think it's wise necessarily to plot like our current like left and right kind of polarization of our nation onto the map of Jesus' world. But there were two distinct factions of people in Jesus' day that kind of approached Scripture like that. The first group is the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a small sect of upper-class, well-educated elites living in the center of Jerusalem. They were not poor peasants. They were not farmers. They were like elites, powerful, wealthy people. And they were very relaxed around Scripture. They did not believe in the resurrection they did not believe in anything supernatural. And they were eager, they were really eager for new interpretations around certain ways of living that fit and accommodated their Greco-Roman vision for the good life. These were very um, elite Jewish in genealogy people, but that also loved this Greco-Roman way of life. And they wanted interpretations that fit the two together. Mark chapter 12 is a beautiful passage. It's Jesus dealing with the Sadducees. And it goes like this. Then the Sadducees, who say there was no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, the backstory of this is really beautiful in a culture that had no um, good architecture around defending women who became uh, widowed. Um, there was a beautiful place thing in place called the Law of Leveret Marriage. It's, it's Old Testament. It's something that's not really true in our day and age, but we have to understand the context. 
And that's what they're bringing up here. And now they're bringing up mother of all hypotheticals. Now there were seven brothers. <laughs> the first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. I mean, like, someone needs to put this woman under investigation. <laughs> the, uh, in fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, which they don't believe in, which is kind of like a little dig at the resurrection, you know, it's like this. Notice the contempt of the Sadducees in this, right? At the resurrection, whose life will she be since the seven were married to her? So not only is he kind of attacking, uh, the Sadducees are kind of attacking this idea of resurrection, but they're kind of belittling scripture from their own tradition. Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? And then he goes on, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven, which is kind of another thing they don't believe in. Just kind of pushing back. Now about the dead rising, have you not read that the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. You are badly mistaken. So they come to him and they, they push and he says, you are in error, and you're badly mistaken. You do not know the scriptures and how they all fit together. You are missing out on the power of God and the activity of God in and through you. That's the Sadducees. Let's talk about the Pharisees. They were a populist movement. Let's just kind of bring it down to kind of what we understand um, in our day and age. They were a group of people, poorer, more rural. They lived in pr primarily around the Galilee area up in the north. They were all about the Bible. They were all about scripture. They read it. They put it to memory. They studied it. They were devoted to it. But over time, they added to it. Now, they didn't add like pages into the Bible, but what they did was they added layers and interpretations of They were called the Mishnah and uh, the Talmud, and those are still in use today. Now, Jesus has many interactions with the Pharisees. You're all, we're all aware of this, right? Verse... 39 and John 5, he's having an interaction with the Pharisees, and he says this, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. He's like, here's the thing, you guys... It is, no, it is no mystery that you guys love and study the scriptures. But you're missing the main point of them. In fact, in some ways, this is kind of what many have been, many have called this idea of bibliolatry. That you love the Bible, 
but you are not loving people. And he goes on, and this, is, um, this won't be on the screen. I, I added this this morning. I figured we needed to go more into this. He says, do not accept glory. He says, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not, accept, do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And this is the kind of the final piece of this that I think is really worth letting us wash over us. But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes rest. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Jesus' word to the Pharisees, I think, personally, I actually think is loving. He's like, you're studying it, but you're missing the whole thing. You've lost sight of the fact that the Bible is a means to an end, and the end is to become a loving person full of life with Jesus in the kingdom. So we could stop here. This could be it for today. We could go, hey, there's two different ways you could read Scripture, like the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Um, don't, <laughs> and be on your way. But I still think there's a little level of, of technique in a third way of looking at Scripture. We need to deal with the heart posture that you and I have towards the Bible, meaning our approach, okay? We need to work out the role of Scripture in our apprenticeship to Jesus. Is it something that intentionally forms us? Second Timothy, Paul, also a Jewish rabbi, also a teacher of the Scriptures. He uh, was apprentice. He became an apprentice of Jesus. He became a follower of Jesus, a radical conversion, the whole thing. And then he writes to his protege, um, Timothy, who's in Ephesus, and he is trying to lead this squirrely church in Ephesus. And to listen to what Paul says to Timothy, he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. He's like, keep going, because you know those from who you learned it, and how from infancy you have made known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise. That word wise uh, means intelligent and goodness and good at living, uh, which are able to make you wise for salvation, which is for the healing of your soul and your union and relationship with God himself through faith, which is trust in or allegiance in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So teaching, revealing the whole possibility of living in wholeness in Christ. Rebuking, revealing all the ways in which we are not living in alignment with wholeness in Christ. 
correcting, bringing back into alignment in the kingdom of God. And then training, this word is padia, which is the overall process. It's not like athletic training. Paul uses a lot of metaphors in athleticism, but this is not. Um, This word is this idea, this overall process of growth in a Greco-Roman child and how they go through stages of formation and and, um, responsibility as they grow. And he says this to this end, this is the end of it, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And now I think my version I just read to you was out of the NIV. I don't like that version right there. Um, Actually, in this instance, like the ESV reading, uh, the idea is that you may be complete the ideal example, example of something, something uh, some scholars put it, something that is perfectly suited to its nature. Does this sound like Tov? Anybody? That this is the end, this is the telos, this is the complete us, that there's a complete you that's not yet here, that's in process, that's in training. That God, through Scripture, will grow us up an expansion of our souls through the wholeness of Christ. That's the idea. Now, we read the Scriptures partly because of this idea of being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did, which is a Dallas Willard quote, which is this idea of becoming mature, We're going to talk a lot about that next week um, in our conversation about where we're going as a community. By the way, please don't miss next week. Like, don't do it. Just don't. Yeah. We'll have it recorded. Okay. Um, But to have this happen, you and I need more than technique. We need an approach. We need to read scripture from the right posture. The problem is that you and I tend to read in life most of the time for information. We read to be informed. And sometimes we open scripture to to read it, to, to finish it, and to continue on with our day. And we don't take the time to let it go deeper. Informational reading covers ground. We get the data we need. Formational reading, we sit in the text. Informational reading is kind of this linear, right to left, you know, top to bottom. Formational reading has depth to it. Informational reading has this goal of mastering the text. Formational reading has the goal of having been mastered by the text. It's not bad to read informationally. In fact, it's not bad to read the Bible informationally. But to become complete, to become, for most of us in the room, to become complete, it requires a different shift in how we look at Scripture. One of my favorite authors about scripture is a guy named Robert Mulholland. And he wrote, he wrote this. I just love this. 
He says, this means that our spiritual journey is not our setting out by gathering information and applying it correctly to find God as an object out there to be grasped and controlled by us. It is a journey of learning to yield ourselves to God and discovering where God will take us. The great challenge of our spiritual life is learning to trust in Jesus or to have faith or what we call allegiance to Jesus. So when we read scripture for formation, it forces us to confront all the ways we tend to view our life as under our control. Okay? That's what it does. So the process of being conformed to the image of Christ takes place at all the points, <laughs> and this is the hard part, all the points in our lives that we are unlike Christ. And the first step is confronting those places. Our view of God. Our view of God may not be Christ-like. Our view of people. Our view of morality, sexuality, money, lifestyle. There's places in our lives that are unlike Christ. And so here's what I just want to encourage you with this. As long as I'm trapped, personally, it, I've learned as long as I'm trapped in my own need for control, I'm not free to become the person of love and peace that I actually deeply ache to become. And I'll be honest with you that I say things like, man, Jesus is doing some awesome stuff in me right now. Like, I love this. This feels so good. <laughs> you almost will never hear me say that. I've learned that it's most often like, this season feels hard. What is going on? Where is the control part of me rubbing against what God wants in me? There's something about coming to grips with my vain attempts to control my life. And what Robert Rowan was talking about is this posture of yield, yielding to God, that is the basis for all the maturity, the completeness that God wants to do in me. Okay, And I think that this is what Jesus talked about when he said, take up your cross. To deny yourself, take up your cross. I used to think growing up, like when I heard that, I'm like, deny myself, deny myself. <laughs> like, like grip heart, like think harder, willpower, deny, I got to deny myself. I, you know, like some of you are trying to do with food right now because it's the new year, right? <laughs> deny myself. Those jerks bought donuts again. Deny myself, right? You know, I don't think that's ultimately the posture. I think it goes from this to this. Letting go. Letting go, giving up control, open to what God wants to do in me. 
It's changing our posture from a clenched fist to an open hand. In the tradition I grew up with, it's this idea of surrender, right? And all of us tend to resist the move of the Spirit in this area, in this arena of our lives. And so as we wrap this up this morning, this giving up of control is not a self-improvement process. But that we are in some sense locked from within in our lives, that we have the, in a sense, the opportunity to unlock the door from the inside, deny our control, open ourselves up to the power of the Spirit through the Scriptures. And this cuts across all the grains in our culture and in our individualism and in our sense of control. It cuts across all of that. And so today... This is just kind of intro, kind of mix it up for you and me. Simply want you to do this. I want you to have a conversation with someone in your life that you trust about your relationship with the Bible. I know that sounds like a weird thing to do. But I, I want you to have a conversation with somebody. And now it might be that you feel like, oh man, I need, to, I need to fudge my number a little bit to make it look like I'm not so you know, bitter and angry and aloof. No, just be honest with your spouse, with uh, a friend, with, it would be really cool before you left the four walls of this room to do that. Like, where, what's your number? <laughs> you know, <laughs> just have that conversation. Because I think if you can have that conversation out loud with somebody else, you can probably have that conversation with God. You can probably have some authenticity around that. Maybe it's a conversation you have over coffee. Maybe it's a conversation you have over dinner. Maybe it's a way for you to connect with people in your life. Now, throughout this conversations we're going to have in the next number of weeks, you are going to have opportunities to ask questions questions of why is this the case in the Bible and what about this and like if you're and they can be anonymous questions we're going to set up a Google form we're going to get that to you you can throw out your questions and we'll do our best to answer those we may have a little Q&A panel towards the end Um, and so if you're having some like big kind of crisis kind of thoughts about scripture let's let's talk about those but I would love for you to have a conversation with someone today. The second thing I would encourage you to do is wherever you're at in your numbers, to pick this back up again. Pick this back up. 66 separate books, 40 separate human authors spanning let's just say a lot of time from different backgrounds. What is your routine when it comes to scripture? You might say, I don't have one. That's okay. What could your routine for tomorrow look like? Like what if you were to pick this up instead of going, I don't understand this, it's overwhelming. What if you were to pick this up and maybe start in the Psalms like Evelyn read this morning, Psalm 1? 
or you started in Matthew, and you just came before God, and you come to quiet, and you with parents with kids, you're like, right, um, but not necessarily quiet out here, but quiet in here. And you come with a posture that's open to listen, read, and yield. And you don't have to have it all figured out. And focus less on technique and just more on your approach. The posture of your heart. Like, I'm just here. I'm just here. I'm doing my best to unlock unlock from the inside and let you in, God. This is what the ancients called, uh, they called this way of reading spiritual reading. Um, silent surrender. Thurin Kierkegaard is uh, a Danish theologian I've read a lot. Um, he called this a silent surrendering of everything to God. And when we read this way in our approach, it's this posture of inner yielding. And it's, it takes us to the very places in our lives Uh, that we can reflect on our lives, our mind, you know, how our mind operates, our actions, and where, you know, sometimes our life is most at odds with Jesus. And there's this loving invitation to yield because it's not about, it's about the life that Jesus has on for us. It is beautiful. The problem is, is this idea is, is such a threat to our ego, our need of control and our, our own selves. And, and when I think about that in my life, I take seriously the line from Jesus that we read. He, and he said, you have no room for my word. Oh. I just think that that's a deep groan of love from Jesus. Don't. Don't get to that place. Reading scripture is a chance to make room for Jesus, to welcome his direction and his correction and his movement in our lives. And rather than questioning it, and there's a place for questioning it, let it question and interrogate us, letting it heal us in that process. So that's my goal. Our goal, that we would, be become, we would become a, a people who approach the scriptures with an openness and a posture of yielding to the work of Jesus in our hearts. And that would spill out in our lives, in our relationships, in the deepest places. And that's our goal. That's my goal. And so we will prepare some ways for you to throw us your questions, but I want to encourage you to have that conversation today, all right? Let me pray. God, we are approaching um, more conversation around this, this text, these scriptures around what they mean. And God, I just recognize that we all come here with different 
baggage, different expectations for what Scripture is. God, show us how to be a community that allows it more and more to form us, to show us um, how to and, and to form us in a way of making us complete, to make us become the kind of people that you intended us to be, a community of Tov, a community of goodness, God, I don't want this to be a conversation about guilt and shame around how much time we spend and what we know about Scripture and don't know. I want this to be about our posture of allowing this to open up places in us that your Spirit can change us. So God, give us... um, Give us the encouragement together to do this. Uh, Give us the right uh, posture. Give us the moments. Gosh, even if it's a couple of minutes, God, show us a way to re-architect our life in a way that this has a place in our apprenticeship to Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So I like to imagine that Many of you are like me, so I'm not alone in this. Uh, I grew up in a literalist fundamental church, and then I went to a liberal univer- Christian university. And so I've, I've, I've spanned the gamut of, of biblical interpretation um, and, and have kind of been left going, what, so what is it? Because, because both sides have some good points, um, and, and I work in a Christian environment now, and so I'm around the conversation all the time. And so what I would say to you is that I don't think I'm in much of a different position than most of you. This is still a question on my mind. How do we approach Scripture? How do we, how do we define what is, what is truth, what, what, what truth is in Scripture? How does this change and affect our lives? Uh, and, and so I would just say that to encourage you to say, um, those of us that are up here speaking don't have it all figured out either um, because there's a lot to figure out. And I don't know that we ever will. <clears throat> but the journey, <clears throat> excuse me, um, is, is definitely better to do together. Uh, because we come with different perceptions and different um, understandings and different insights. Um, so these conversations are important to have um, and, and don't think you have to go away having it figured out. But in all of this, what I'm convinced of is that the Bible is true. And, and truth is, is, especially in our culture, is, is, is a weird word that can be defined in many ways. And, and even for the people I've talked to who don't believe in the Bible, they, because they're agnostic or atheist, um, they would at least say that there is truth in the Bible. And so as we go, I hope that we can explore that. So will you stand and receive a benediction? So as you go, may you understand the truth of how much God loves you. May you walk with Jesus the way, the truth, and the life. And may the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, fill you with great joy as you serve in this world. Amen. Go in peace.